Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Hey guys, it's Brandon from the MacroOps Value Hive podcast. At MacroOps, our aim is simple. We want to make high risk-adjusted returns consistently, continuously learn while doing so, and have a lot of fun along the way. And in this regard, our record speaks for itself. This is partly why we have by far the highest retention rates of any investing service in the industry. Collective members tend to stay members for a long time because there really is nothing else like us. We offer differentiated research, theory, and education resources, plus a killer Slack community filled with some of the smartest operators from around the world. Our members are predominantly professionals, but we also have a high number of highly motivated retail investors and traders. The one thing we all share is a deep love for the game of investing and an unquenchable thirst to get better. If this sounds like you, then consider signing up and checking us out. You simply go to macro-ops.com forward slash collective. That's macro-ops forward slash collective. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. ValueHive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V-A-L-U-E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M-A-R-H-E-L-M.com to get your discount today. This is PFH Capital's 2023 annual letter to the members of the PH, PFH Capital Fund, LLC. Warren Buffett once referred to his partner, Charlie Munger, as the abominable no man. Warren described the need to calibrate Charlie's answers. Quote, if you ask Charlie something and he says no, then we put all of our money in it. If he says that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, then we make a more moderate investment. Close quote. Charlie had his reasons for saying no. Per his friend and longtime business associate, Otis Booth, quote, Charlie realizes that it is difficult to find something that is really good. So if you say no 90% of the time, you're not missing much in the world, close quote. Here's how Charlie himself once put it, quote, I had a relative by marriage who died in his late 80s, and I don't think he ever had a loss. He only did about eight things in his lifetime. He started with a small poke, and if something wasn't a near cinch, he didn't do it. He lived well and died rich. I think it's possible for a great many people to live a life like that, where there isn't much risk of disaster and where they're virtually sure to get ahead a reasonable amount. It takes a lot of judgment, a lot of discipline, and an absence of hyperactivity. By this method, I think most intelligent people can take a lot of risk out of life. 
close quote. Charlie Munger passed away on November 28, 2023, at the not-so-tragic age of 99. Unbeknownst to us at the time, we had already spent the first 11 months of the year honoring our cherished mentor by saying no over and over again, with just one significant new position gaining admission to our portfolio. Quote, or in parentheses, in fairness, we added a second position in December. Many potential investments cross our desk each year. We reject a majority off the bat for reasons ranging from valid, we don't trust the industry, to questionable, a bad hunch. Even when we kick the tires on a potential investment, the odds are stacked against it displacing one of our current holdings, which we are generally quite fond of. When I was younger, I would never have ended the year with so few new positions to show for it. In retrospect, I don't think I appreciated the scarcity of good ideas. Further down the track. We measure the returns of the fund in nominal rather than real U.S. dollars. For much of U.S. history, this distinction did not mean much. Periods of inflation around wars were followed by periods of offsetting deflation, such that the cumulative inflation experience between the Revolutionary War and the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 was essentially nil. The, ex the expectation has subsequently become that the U.S. dollar would lose value over time, roughly 90% in CPI terms since 1913. The question being, at what rate and volatility? There is a strong argument that low and steady inflation is preferable to deflation. That argument is broken by sufficiently high and volatile inflation, a risk with which I expect this fund to contend for the, the foreseeable future. I stand by the following from last year's letter. Quote, in the United States, the core driver of long-term inflation are persistent government deficits, which create more debt supply than can be absorbed by market demand at rates affordable to the U.S. government. Close quote. This is a slow-motion train wreck, with the primary uncertainty being time to impact. The U.S. continued accelerating down the track during its fiscal year ending September 2023. The deficit increased from $1.4 to $1.7 trillion, and federal debt held by the public increased from $24.3 to $26.3 trillion. The CBO's latest extended baseline projection has the ratio of federal debt held by the public to GDP crossing 100% during 2024 and exceeding 180% by 2053, all, of course, secured by the labor of our children. The $2 trillion in incremental debt added during 2023 was almost entirely piled onto the books of domestic banks, insurers, mutual pension funds, and individuals. Considering this group had collectively accumulated $11.3 trillion in federal debt the previous 246 years of U.S. history, it was perhaps the epitome of American optimism to think we could add an additional $2 trillion in a single year. Unsurprisingly, things immediately broke in March 2023, resulting in three of the four largest bank failures in U.S. history. The crisis was only paused when the U.S. government took on a substantial contingent liability by, in effect, eliminating FDIC coverage limits. Since the March panic, M2 money supply has been held essentially flat as the Fed neutralized the impact of its Treasury sales with offsetting balance sheet maneuvers. Of the $20.8 trillion in U.S. dollars created over the course of history, or U.S. history, more than a quarter still materialized after February 2020. Foreign creditors have continued to roll their eyes at the situation, led by China, who decreased its treasury holdings by 14% during the 2023 fiscal year. Net exporters are unmistakably spurn spurning treasuries and reinvesting trade surpluses into alternatives. 
One clear alternative is gold, with central banks buying record amounts of the precious metal in 2022 and 2023. Geopolitical factors are playing a significant role, especially as the West amplifies its threats to compensate the $300 billion in Russian reserve assets that has already frozen. But it is also mathematically clear that the U.S. cannot afford to continue running such large fiscal deficits without resorting to currency debasement. The 20th century witnessed the world move from multipolar UK, France, Germany, Russia, US to bipolar US, Russia to unipolar US. And in the process, gold went from 72% of global international reserves in 1950 to 14% by 2020, displaced primarily by US dollars and euros, 51% and 18% respectively as of 2020. It is plausible that this process reverses as we move back towards a multipolar world. In that scenario, I have no idea what gold is worth, but I have an educated guess as to which direction its price will go. And there's a quote from Anthony Dedden, quote, gold has no PE. It has a P, but not an E. And the fact that the P is in money, which itself, we don't know what that's worth, close quote. An update on Polymetal International. Our fund is exposed to gold via Polymetal International, a holding likely to do well if gold prices stay flat and phenomenally well if gold prices rally. We discussed our Polymetal position in last year's letter, and I believe an update is justified. As a brief recap, Polymetal is a world-class gold producer with eight mines in Russia and two in Kazakhstan. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, the UK-listed and Channel Island domiciled polymetal was caught up in the tit-for-tat economic warfare between the West and Russia. Its share price collapsed 90% in three weeks, allowing us to establish our position at, at a hair over one times 2021 earnings. With 40% of 2021 production coming from Kazakhstan, we felt polymetal's equity was too cheap even if its Russian mines ended up confiscated. This past summer, Polymetal successfully redomiciled to Kazakhstan, a neutral jurisdiction, maintaining healthy economic relations with both the West and Russia. Our shares are now held on the Astana International Exchange in Kazakhstan. This was a crucial step in restoring the long-term value of Polymetal's equity. The action has effectively unfrozen its shares, while substantially reducing the risk of Polymetal's assets inside Russia will be confiscated. A plausible response should the West move forward and confiscate Russia's reserve assets. Polymetal's goal is now to sell the Russian assets, most likely to Chinese buyers, then relist in London. The equity re-rated higher after the London to Astana move, leaving our appreciated position in Polymetal as the fund's third largest at year-end. I expect Polymetal to re-rate higher once more if slash when relisted in London, an admittedly circular thesis. As of the end of December, Polymetal traded at $4.50 per share, in the general ballpark of where I believe the company's net cash could sit after a sale of the Russian assets. If things play out that way, someone acquiring a Polymetal share today would essentially be paying $4.50 for roughly $4.50 in cash, plus two Kazakhstan gold mines thrown in for free. I like free gold mines, an opportunity I believe persists largely for non-fundamental reasons, most notably by a lack of investor visibility and access as it pertains to the Astana International Exchange. Being willing and able to hunt in the world's lesser-followed stock exchanges remains a feature of our fund, one I hope proves fruitful long-term. On a final note, we had an 
inkling when we first invested in Polymetal that it may be run by the sort of owner management with whom we typically like to partner from last year's annual letter. Quote, through its asset quality and operating success, Polymetal has historically put itself in the lower half of the industry cost curve, leading to returns on equity averaging 27% in the decade running through December 2021. Those returns were solidly backed by free cash flow, roughly 70% conversion, despite Polymetal roughly doubling its reserves, resources, and annual production rate. Insiders are well aligned with CEO Vitaly Nessus owning many times his compensation in stock and his brother, Alexander Nessus, beneficially owning 11.3% of the company. Our opinion of CEO Vitaly Nessus has only strengthened during 2023, not just because of what we view as strong operational execution in a tricky environment, but also for the frank and transparent manner in which he has communicated with shareholders. Let's put it this way. The fair value at which we consider separating with our polymetal shares has only increased. Swapping dollars for jewels. Energy is a fundamental human need, and since it cannot be printed, it's fun it functions as a wonderful inflation hedge. It continues to perplex us that so many energy equities trade so cheaply in the current environment. Our portfolio's exposure to the underappreciated energies of past, coal, present, oil, and future uranium increased from 37% to 42% during 2023. Both of our significant new positions in 2023 were coal-related. Natural Resource Partners, NRP, is a limited partnership traded on the New York Stock Exchange. It consists of two business segments, one, a 49% interest in SizeCam Wyoming soda ash operations, and two, a royalty business encompassing 13 million acres of mineral interests and other subsurface rights across the U.S. The bulk of the value is in the latter, which is currently driven by the production of metallurgical coal used to make steel, and to a lesser extent thermal coal burned in power plants. NRP made some missteps through the mid-2010s, essentially... Essentially, a lot of debt taken on, $1.5 billion at its peak, to diversify away from coal and into aggregates, industrial minerals, and oil natural gas assets. They have since refocused the business, cutting the business segments from four to two, and meticulously eliminating the debt from their balance sheet. Chairman CEO Corbin Robinson Jr. has been well aligned through this process, owning 20% of the common units, the market value of which is almost 80x his total compensation. We established our position in the first half of 2023 with a view that the deleveraging was nearly complete and annual unit holder distributions in the range of 50, or I'm sorry, 150 to 300 million could resume by 2025. Given that it traded at a 700 million market cap, it has almost doubled since. The implied yield was in the 20 to 40% range, at least to investors able to pass the marshmallow test and delay gratification for a couple of years. Keep in mind, future distributions will be driven by the royalty business, so we benefit from a degree of inbuilt inflation protection, i.e. the distributions rise, all else equal with coal prices. Our valuation of NRP counts on little in terms of non-coal income. This is probably harsh. Hidden optionality underlies NRP's 13 million acres, an enormous amount of land exceeding the combined acreage of New Hampshire and Vermont. For example, NRP owns the subsurface rights to pore space underneath 3.5 million acres, space specifically reserved for the permanent sequestration of greenhouse gases. This is a theoretical opportunity in the billions which we underwrite at zero, given sparse details of the economics behind the acres NRP has leased to date and the commercial potential and time frame of what's remaining. Better to be surprised to the upside than disappointed to the downside.
Whitehaven Coal, WHC, is Australia's leading producer of high-quality thermal coal, which it exports to premium markets in Asia. Whitehaven announced in October that it was acquiring two premier metallurgical coal mines, Downia and Blackwater, from BHP Mitsubishi Alliance. If we model relatively bearish coal prices, I estimate they paid five times after-tax earnings for these two mines. Under more bullish coal assumptions, similar to today's pricing, the price paid drops to perhaps two to three times after-tax earnings. If you assume the contingency amounts are all ultimately paid, Whitehaven is being asked to put a little over 50% down, with BMA essentially financing the remaining cost over three years. With 17 years of mine life left at, at Downia, which conveniently sits next door to Whitehaven's Winchester South Mine, and 50 plus years at the much larger Blackwater, this was an incredibly or this was an incredible deal for Whitehaven under all but the most apocalyptic coal scenarios. The initial market reaction to this deal was subdued, perhaps because it was meant Whitehaven would be redirecting cash flows away from share repurchases. I view this as short-sightedness, and I'm happy to see Whitehaven's management make what I think is the correct long-term decision. When someone hands you premier assets with decades of remaining cash flow and essentially says, quote, give me the first few years, you take the rest, close quote, you take the rest. And that is exactly what our fund did with Whitehaven shares themselves, which we acquired in December for what I believe to be a low single-digit multiple of post-acquisition earnings. Whitehaven's acquisition flips its primary end product from thermal to low-vol hard-coking coal, the most valuable metallurgical coal on the market, and primary end customer from power plants to steel mills. Even the most staunch environmentalists would acknowledge the ongoing need for steel, at a minimum to produce the infrastructure for renewable energies like wind and solar. Demand for metallurgical coal is not going anywhere anytime soon. That said, I'm just as happy to own Whitehaven's pre-existing thermal business. For one, thermal coal demand is not in decline. In fact, with China and India increasing their coal power fleets by at least 25% by 2030, thermal coal demand appears to be increasing. Two, Whitehaven's low impurity, high energy content thermal coal is highly sought after in premium Asian markets where high efficiency, low emissions, supercritical and ultra-supercritical coal plants are displacing their dirtier subcritical predecessors. To keep our overall coal exposure in check, we decided to sell our existing position in Console Energy, CEIX. CEIX manages a wonderful collection of assets, but it re-rated to a higher valuation multiple at the same time our comfort level with U.S. thermal coal exports diminished. The fund achieved a IRR of 31% on Console, mostly comprised of long-term capital gains. Shifting our focus from coal to uranium, allow me to start with a chart showing three lines. Global atomic share price, spot uranium prices, and long-term uranium prices. The first observation, uranium continued its bullish run in 23, caveating that long-term long pricing lagged spot pricing. Long-term is, is generally supposed to trade at a slight premium to spot. We will see if speculators have driven spot beyond its near-term fundamentals. The second observation, see that 50% crash in global atomic shares during the summer of 23? That was the recent military coup in Niger. The situation was touch and go for a few months, so we tactically swapped a portion of our uranium exposure from global atomic to the commodity itself. That trade worked well, returning 41% in the second half of 23. Meanwhile, the Niger situation appears to be stabilizing, and I believe the most likely scenario is that Global Atomic funds its project and ramps to full production, albeit on less attractive terms and a more drawn-out schedule than originally hoped. It is plausible that Global Atomic's long-term positioning in Niger has actually improved, given that French forces were expelled from the country, and this has presumably, presumably weakened Global Atomic's top competitor in Niger, which is Orano. Using long-term pricing as of December, $68 per pound, 
Global Atomic was trading at a mid-single-digit multiple of the $100 million in annual free cash flow it could be generating after a couple of years. It is hard to find similarly attractive opportunities in the uranium sector these days, at least those with a realistic shot of adding near-term production right when it's needed. After a decade of low uranium prices, the world needed recent increases to stimulate the supply response necessary to service today's 440 operable nuclear reactors. Higher consumption than production of uranium has driven commercial stockpiles down from 415 million pounds in 2018 to 250 million pounds at the end of 23. That covers less than 18 months of current demand, which is cutting things a bit close, historically speaking. At the same time, future demand is inflecting up as countries like China, India, and Russia charge ahead with their nuclear expansion plans. We can't help but notice that after 2022's energy market chaos, the narrative across the entire world appears to be shifting in nuclear's favor. Today's 440 operating nuclear reactors only meet 4% of the world's primary energy demand. What happens if the world decides that within a few decades it wants nuclear to meet 30% of its primary demand to reduce the contribution of fossil fuels? What long-term price would be needed to stimulate enough uranium supply growth in the next couple decades to service a few thousand reactors? Directionally speaking, I would, com I would comfortably venture higher as a guess. A visit from Spirosoft. On the non-commodity half of our portfolio, we remain invested in a few wonderful businesses growing at high returns on capital. These businesses are rarely priced attractively, which is why we've looked into which why we've looked to find them in off-the-beaten-path markets. Markets such as Poland and Kazakhstan, where portfolio holding company Caspi continues to put up incredible numbers in preparation for its US listing in 2024. One of our wonderful businesses is Spirosoft a Polish outsourced software developer we profiled in last year's letter. Spirosoft continued to outgrow its competition in 23, increasing year-over-year -year revenues at close to 20%. Relative to its industry, where growth has essentially stalled out. While we should moderate near-term expectations as the post-COVID IT spending boom peters out, I remain very optimistic about Spirosoft's long-term future. That optimism was reinforced this past September when we had the honor of hosting three of Spirosoft's four founders at the Microcap Leadership Summit in Chicago. Namely, CEO Conrad Weiske, CFO Wojciech Bod Bodneris, and UK Managing Director Andrew Radcliffe. After spending some quality time with these gentlemen, I can confirm that they resoundingly tick four critical boxes, integrity, intelligence, energy, and alignment. Regarding the latter, the importance of alignment is self-evident. The incentive faced by a CEO owning 100 times their salary in stock, as is the case with Spirosoft, differ dramatically from those faced by a CEO owning one one-hundredth of their salary. As passive shareholders, we obviously prefer to invest alongside the former. And besides, if management doesn't want to own their stock, why should we? But the benefits of investing alongside aligned management transcends mere agency risk minimization, especially when it comes to founder management like Spirosoft's. We mindfully embrace our holdings for what they are, real businesses run by real people, not tickers on a screen. But to the founder who starts a business from scratch, likely at great personal financial risk, it is so much more than a business. Given enough time, energy, and love, that business becomes core to their very identity, a calling, a mission, a life's work, one in which we are afforded the privilege of owning a fractional interest. Investing can be a beautiful thing. We closed a few positions during 2023. We sold our position in the Hong Kong listed PAX Global in November. We were invested in this business for almost two and a half years, a period we witnessed PAX report $390 million in accounting profits, backed by only $6 million in free cash flow. 
There are plenty of innocent explanations for this discrepancy, but none we felt comfortable underwriting, especially with regional tensions, always a simple misunderstanding away from catastrophe. This position delivered an IRR of 22%. We disposed of our position in Faisal Islamic Bank of Egypt during 2023. When we established our position in 21, Faisal was attractive for its stable and cheap deposit base, which it mostly reinvested into Egyptian government debt. Cheap deposits plus high-yield government debt enabled Faisal to routinely generate a 2-3% return on assets, very high by bank standards. Those assets were denominated in Egyptian pounds, which have steadily lost value against the dollar over time. But with Faisal only trading at a third of its book value, we felt there was enough margin of safety to offset the currency risk. This was no longer the case by 2023, with Faisal having re-rated to two-thirds book value, so we closed the position. It was perhaps still too cheap, but I just don't like banks, if I'm being honest. This position delivered an IRR of 25%. Finally, we sold our position in Tethys Oil. Tethys is a well-stewarded oil producer, but its mature fields in Oman appear to have entered a slow production decline, meaning Tethys's future value is increasingly a function of exploration success, or lack thereof. I do not feel particularly competent in weighting the odds Tethys strikes black gold in the Omani desert. Frankly, there are easier bets out there, and clearly our portfolio isn't short of energy exposure. Net of dividends, this position was approximately break-even for us. A poor result, though in fairness, it could have been worse given we established it in early 2020, right before the pandemic crashed oil prices. Closing remarks. Warren Buffett once stated, lethargy bordering on sloth remains the cornerstone of our investment style. The comment was obviously tongue-in-cheek. It would be a stretch to accuse two men still working in their 90s of sloth. Warren was likely alluding to the fact that Charlie and he spent a lot of their days reading and thinking, and from the outside looking in, that probably didn't look an awful lot like work. Charlie Munger was a master when it came to elaborating the purpose of this work, always with the clarity from which I derived tremendous value. Quote, You know the game in our kind of life is being able to recognize a good idea when you rarely get it, and I think... That's something you have to prepare for over a long period. Opportunity comes to the prepared mind, close quote. In the work of preparing the mind, mentors are perhaps the most valuable tool, and so I will be eternally grateful for Charlie Munger. Charlie was served by his own mentors, his greatest Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, of course, was inspired by the greats who preceded him, chief among them Cicero. We can never truly repay our mentors. Franklin's had quite literally died almost 1,750 years before his birth, but we can pay it forward something Franklin did unambiguously when he translated Cicero's De Senectu. Upon discovering it late in life, Charlie gleefully consumed the translation, describing how the experience helped him achieve greater self-understanding and acceptance. I can personally attest that Charlie paid it forward in life. I hope to do the same. Here's to a productive 2024, lost in our thoughts, preparing the mind. Thank you for your investment in our partnership. Thomas Bachrock, PFH Capital. This is So Repeak Capital Partners. Q4 2023 letter. Dear partners and friends, our partnership recorded a gain of 13.5% net of all fees, expenses, and allocation for the quarter ending December 31st, 2023. Over the same period, the S&P 500 recorded a gain of 11.7%, including dividends. The below table highlights the partnership's key portfolio composition metrics as of December 31st. Number of holdings, 13. Top 5 holding concentration, 74.5%. Average market cap, $269 million U.S. dollars. Investments in non-U.S. companies, 71%. Our partnership delivered a gain of 82% net of all fees, expenses, and allocations for the full year 2023. 
This returns, this year's returns were unusually strong, while the laws of probability would suggest that we are unlikely to repeat annual returns of this magnitude ever again. I am nonetheless happy to share this update and to have created meaningful economic value for our partners. Our, perform our performance this year was driven by strong collective share price appreciation across many of our core holdings. Auto Partner and Mater Group shares each appreciated by 90 to 95%, and Duratech Limited and American Coastal Insurance Corporation each saw their shares their share prices increase multiple fold. Although we had a collection of winners and losers among the remainder of our portfolio, our holdings were generally most concentrated in what became our biggest winners. During a recent call with one of our investors, I was asked if I was surprised by our partnership's returns this year. My answer was that I was not surprised that any of our individual holdings had appreciated by as much as they did, given our views on price and intrinsic value. Rather, if anything, I would not have expected to have as many as four of our core holdings appreciate by close to 100% or greater in a single year. In my experience, an investor can stack the odds of success in their favor by making sound investments, but even if you are correct in your thesis, predicting exactly when those companies' share prices will converge with intrinsic value is closer to unknowable. I certainly did not know, at least. By understanding this and focusing on what is knowable, we continue to remain committed to our investment process. Finding the best investment opportunities available to us and over time letting the chips fall where they may. While I often have reasonable conviction as to our eventual collection of those chips, I have far lower conviction as to the timing of when those chips may be collected. Accordingly, in our pursuit of exceptional long-term returns, if we do in fact achieve our goal of delivering returns anywhere in the realm of exceptional, I hope to remind you that our returns are highly likely to be volatile. We will inevitably experience bad years as well as good years. What is important to us is appreciating that we must endure the bad years in order to reap the rewards of the good years, and compounding our partner's capital at the highest rate of return that we responsibly can. We endeavor to build upon our early results in the years to come. Our portfolio today is comprised of holdings which we are, con which we are content with, including several newer companies we have not yet mentioned but are excited to eventually discuss. We are happy with our current portfolio. Worth mentioning, our top five holding concentration of 74.5% at year end was somewhat unusual, was somewhat higher than usual. This was in part the result of sizable incoming investor subscriptions to the partnership for the period beginning January 1, 2024. Because we, because we were anticipating these subscriptions, rather than reallocate capital to meet our desired portfolio weights, we allowed these subscriptions to be received by the fund first. As of January 1st, our top five holding concentration was significantly reduced. For prospective partners wishing to learn more, we are currently open to new introductions. Our partnership has seen a significant increase in investor interest in recent months. While we continue to be selective in, in accepting the right partners, fortunately, most prospective partners we have met have been terrific in many respects and aligned with our long-term objective. I've also recently given a great deal of thought to our partnership's long-term capacity for assets under management. At some point, we intend to stop accepting new capital. At that moment, we are open to accepting an additional $30 million in new subscriptions. Preserving the quality of our partners remains our top business priority, and we look forward to meeting future prospective partners. As always, I would like to extend a thank you to all of you or to all of our outstanding limited partners, including those of you who have recently joined our partnership for your steadfast commitment and trust. Not letting good enough get in the way of perfect. In Q4, in our Q4 letter a year ago, 
Under a section titled Our Competitive Edge, we discuss the key high-level elements that we seek in our ideal and portfolio company, a high-quality business operated by high-quality management teams, and demonstrated a demonstrated history of growing revenues and profits, an opportunity to continue organically compounding profits over a long horizon, and an attractive price relative to intrinsic value. The below matrix, although imperfectly plotting, three axes on a two-dimensional visual illustrates our ideal portfolio company along these variables of quality and growth and present free cash flow yield. In that same letter, I also examine the scarcity of public companies that exist with all three such elements intact and the corners of the market where we usually hunt for these businesses and occasionally find them. Quote, there are generally two types of situations in our experience where a quality company with durable, rapidly growing profits can be purchased at absolute bargain prices. The first situation is a company that is deeply out of favor, or in some cases outright hated for the wrong reasons, where developing a correct contrarian view can provide the opportunity to purchase a great company at a giveaway price. The second situation is a company that can be bought at an absolute bargain price for simple reason that it has not yet been widely discovered by the investing world. I believe our competitive edge lies in our ability to, to correctly identify companies that fit the second type of situation and in our willingness to be the only investors that we know of who own shares. We believe we have been able to make investments where the situation was apparent, and we also believe that these have been the best performing investments to date. Close quote. The above discussion, I believe, helps provide a high-level framework as to how we approach opportunity in the investment world. Through this framework, if our thesis in any given investment is correct, we believe our upside can be significant, and if we are wrong, we believe our downside is generally limited. This is also a method that we are comfortable with. We remind ourselves that there are many roads to Jerusalem. We are journeying along just one. However, I think presenting a standalone framework misses the other important aspects of the investment process that are necessary to best apply that framework, where the rubber meets the road. I often look back at my own mistakes that I've made as an investor over the years. One mistake which I've repeated often and have actively sought to correct, yet still make, and which I believe is relevant and important to this conversation, is the mistake of letting good enough get in the way of perfect when seeking outstanding investments. The old adage advocates for not letting perfect get in the way of good enough, but in my experience, it is the inverse of this adage which provides the more cautionary tale. If we define perfect here as a prospective investment which ranks highly in all three elements of quality, growth, and valuation, then we can define good enough as a prospective investment that, com that compromises on one or more of those elements to varying degrees. Over time, even as I have honed my framework closer towards my idea of a perfect today, I would still frequently find myself recommending or investing in companies which in hindsight were only good enough. I think there are a handful of reasons why settling for good enough in the context of any investment framework can occur, and not all are necessarily bad. For one, sourcing excellent investments is difficult and is made even more challenging under liquidity, sector, or other standard investment constraints. Depending on one's mandates, satisficing can be the only way forward. It is also true that a portfolio of good enough companies can still deliver above average returns and ultimately be good investments, even if they are not among the best possible investments available. Commitment bias is another reason, and I would wager an underappreciated one, why an investor might select a good enough investment rather than discard it in lieu of finding a perfect one. After dozens of hours spent performing primary research, conducting calls, and building Excel models, it is easy to see how an investor might feel committed to that company as long as there is a reasonable argument to be made for its investment merits. I've certainly found myself in this scenario, particularly in my earlier years. 
While there are numerous reasons why one's portfolio may not encompass an entire collection of ideal investments, each person in their portfolio is characterized by a set of reasons specific to them. For me, recognizing my own specific set of reasons that over the years have led me to allow good enough to get in the way of perfect has helped me better commit to demonstrating more patience, persistence, and discernment in my capital allocation decisions today. As a result, the correspondence between our ideal portfolio companies and our actual portfolio companies only continues to improve. We don't have all the answers, but we attempt to improve our process as best and as frequently as we can. One of Buffett's better-known maxims is his analogy comparing investing to baseball, with the difference being that investing is a no-call-strike game. Many important investing lessons really do come back to Buffett, with everything discussed here summed up nicely in Buffett's words, quote, you don't have to swing at everything. You can wait for your pitch, close quote. I firmly believe we are more patient than ever in waiting for our pitch. In the long run, our partnership should be better for it. Closing thoughts. Thank you for your interest in our latest letter. I'm excited about our partnership's future. I remain confident that our partnership's North Star will always be to compound our capital at the highest rate of return responsibly possible. In some respects, this approach may render our partnership uninvestable by many institutional investors. That is perfectly fine by me. We will continue to accept as partners only those who understand and who are aligned with our objective. If you wish to learn more about the partnership, please feel free to reach out to me directly. Our partnership currently welcomes introductions to new investors who are aligned with our philosophy and our long-term approach. Accredited investors interested in receiving future letters can also register on our website, www.sorapeakcapital.com. I value the trust you have placed in me to invest your hard-earned capital and the subsequent majority of my own wealth is presently invested alongside yours. I look forward to writing to you again next quarter. Jonathan Kukawar, CFA, Managing Partner of Sora Peak Partnership, LLC. This is Old West Investment Management, LLC's year-end 2023 letter. Dear Investor, the stock market finished 2023 on a high note, with the S&P up 11% in the fourth quarter and 24% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index was up 17%. At year-end, there was tremendous bullish, bullish sentiment among individual investors who are apparently ignoring many risks at home and across the globe. As impressive as the 24% gain was last year, it only got the market back to even after 2022's 19% loss. As you can see on your enclosed statement, although the Old West portfolios underperformed their benchmarks in 23, this was the first time we underperformed in the past four years. Our three-year and five-year numbers continue to be some of the best in the business. Much has been made of the dramatic effect the Magnificent Seven stocks had on the S&P 500 last year. Apple was up 48%, Microsoft up 57%, Alphabet up 58%, Amazon up 81%, NVIDIA up 239%, Meta up 194%, and Tesla up 102 As an American, I am proud of the dominance and success of these companies on the world stage. As a value investor, I look on in dismay. The MSCI Index, which is comprised of companies worldwide is 62% invested in U.S. companies. Contrast this to the U.S. representing only 4.2% of global population and 15.4% of global GDP. Looked at a different way, the Magnificent Seven stocks are nearly the same value as the combined equity weightings of Canada, Japan, the U.K., China, and France. The Magnificent Seven stocks made up 70% of the S&P 500 gain last year, and 72% of the 500 stocks in the S&P underperformed the index. This type of concentration of performance is rarely seen. The only Magnificent Seven stock in the Dow index is Apple. 
if you look at the ratio of the Dow to S&P 500, it's the lowest since the 2000 tech bubble. Remember what Mark Twain said about history repeating itself. With the market near all-time highs, it begs the question, are valuations justified? The measurement that makes the most sense to me is the Buffett indicator, the ratio of total equity value as measured by the Wilshire 5000 to the U.S. GDP. The indicator is currently 180%, which is 50% higher than the historical trend line and higher than the 159% reached at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Apple is the world's most valuable company and is trading at 31 times earnings, double its historical average. Apple's revenue has fallen for four consecutive quarters and profit growth is negative. Microsoft is the world's second most valuable company and is trading at 36 times earnings. Revenue grew 3.7% last year and net income grew by 3.5%. 42% of all public companies are currently losing money, something you only see during recessions. All of these facts and figures reinforce my belief that value investing is the best way to protect and grow capital. Trillions of dollars have been invested in the mega cap tech companies, not because investors are up until midnight reading 10Ks, but rather because trillions are invested in passive index funds that are market weighted. The higher they go, the higher they go. There's also a lot of worry about in today's world, but there is no greater threat to our country and our markets than our out of control budget deficits, which I've written about in past letters. In just the past few days, the total government debt surpassed $34 trillion. The U.S. Treasury market is now 14% bigger than our banking system. As a reference point, in 2006, the Treasury Department was only 44% of, total, of the total banking system. The U.S. Treasury Department has a massive task before it. We need to fund this year's $2 trillion deficit, fund $1 trillion in interest on our debt, and we have $7.6 trillion in maturing debt next year. In the past, we were able to depend on China, Japan, and other foreign governments to participate in our debt offerings, but that is no longer the case, as both China and Japan have massive debt problems of their own. The business media pays a ridiculous amount of attention to the Fed and speculation as to when the Fed will begin cutting rates. At Old West, we believe the Fed might lose control of the interest rate narrative as massive government debt issuances causes rates to stay higher for longer. A very likely outcome is that the Fed becomes the buyer of last resort akin to Japan to fill the gap of a lack of buyers for our debt. This will be extremely bullish for gold and commodities. Our portfolios have significantly have significant exposure to metals producing companies that will greatly benefit from a weakening dollar and the pending commodity supercycle. We are in uncharted waters with this debt situation. There has never been this much federal debt relative to GDP, and the debt interest expense has never been this high relative to the budget. The current average interest rate on the federal debt is 2.6%. As I said earlier, we have $7.6 trillion maturing this year, which will be refinanced at rates exceeding 4%. Add to this state and local government borrowing needs, and you can see a debt crisis brewing. One more tidbit, there is $500 billion of commercial real estate debt coming due in 2024, followed by another $500 billion in 2025. It's amazing to me that this issue is not getting more attention. The media is obsessed with how AI is revolutionizing our lives while turning a blind eye to this brewing crisis. U-Haul Holding Company, UHAL. A real sweet spot for our investment style is discovering companies run by owners slash manager CEOs with huge ownership stakes in their company. It's hard to find a better example of this than Joe Schoen, CEO and chairman of U-Haul Holdings. Schoen owns 55% of the company, with his stake valued at nearly $6 billion, and his total annual compensation is $1 million. He clearly has more to gain from a higher stock price than his paycheck. U-Haul is based in Reno, Nevada, and is North America's largest do-it-yourself moving and storage operator. 
U-Haul is synonymous with self-moving and is four times larger than its biggest competitor, Penske Truck Leasing. U-Haul was founded in 1945 by Schoen's father as a trailer rental company and began renting trucks in 1959. In 1973, they began their network of U-Haul managed retail stores where they rent trucks and trailers, self-storage units, and moving supplies like boxes and tape. U-Haul has 23,000 locations in North America, of which 2,200 are company-owned and over 2,100 are independent franchise dealers. U-Haul's rental fleet consists of 192,000 trucks, 138,000 trailers, and 44,000 towing devices. A major growth area for the company has been the self-storage business. Most locations have large property footprints, and with captive audience walking in the door, it made the storage business a natural. They now operate 1,900 self-storage locations with 950,000 storage units. The pricing of U-Haul moving trucks has recently been coined the U-Haul Growth Index. It can cost $1,200 to rent a truck from California to Texas and as little as $400 from Texas to California. It has become a useful tool to track migration patterns between states. Last year, the leading migration growth rates were Texas, Florida, and North Carolina. The states suffering the most losses were California, Massachusetts, and Illinois. For fiscal year 2023, U-Haul had $5.75 billion in revenue and $923 million in gap net income. Revenue has grown 70% over the past five years. Gap earnings per share were $4.71, and with today's price, Today's share price at $67, the shares are trading at 14 times earnings. U-Haul share price has doubled over the past five years, and the company pays a modest dividend of $1.08 per share. One negative of U-Haul's financial performance has been the lack of free cash flow. This is due to huge capex of more than $2 billion per year due to the build-out of their self-storage business. This is expected to subside in the future as the build-out develops. U-Haul has a strong balance sheet with net debt at 2.1 times EBITDA and interest coverage of 8.5 times. The current market cap is $12.8 billion. Joe Schoen does not have a great reputation with Wall Street analysts. He rarely speaks to the press, and he chafes at certain questions on conference calls. He doesn't like analysts' focus on short-term results, and he chooses to focus on the big picture and long-term results. While many money managers are happy to invest in money-losing tech companies trading at high multiples of revenue, we prefer to invest in solid companies like U-Haul, run by owner-operators like Joe Schoen. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support, and we wish you a happy, a happy, healthy, and prosperous 2024. Sincerely, Joseph Boscovich, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer.